Hello and welcome to The Wardroom, a podcast dedicated to the leadership development of the Navy's engineering duty officer community. I'm your host, Commander Kyle Miller. Good morning. Today I'm joined by Rear Admiral Thomas Anderson, Program Executive Officer of Ships. Admiral Anderson was commissioned in 1991 through NROTC at Boston University, where he earned a bachelor's in mechanical engineering. As a SWO, he served tours on USS Capadano and USS Arleigh Burke. In 1996, Admiral Anderson was selected to the engineering duty officer community and attended NPS, where he earned a master's in mechanical engineering. Previous flag assignments include Commander, Naval Surface Warfare Center, DOD Executive Manager for Military Explosive Ordnance Technology and Training, Commander, Navy Regional Maintenance Center, and Naval Sea Systems Command, Director for Surface Ship Maintenance and Modernization. Admiral, thank you for joining me today on The Wardroom. Hey, Kyle. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. All right. So I'll jump right into it. So uh, as I said, currently serving as uh, PO Ships. So could you start out by giving us an overview of the PO Ships portfolio? Uh, sure. Um, a little bit of perspective. I've been uh, PO Ships for uh, coming up on uh, three years now. Uh, PO Ships is a pretty wide ranging uh, portfolio. Um, I didn't realize how wide ranging until I got into the job. I had uh, worked in the DDG 51 program, so I was familiar with kind of the surface combatant side of the house. And the uh, LPD was a big program when I was in the DDG program back in the day. Um, but, uh, you know, PEO ships houses over 50 surface platforms as, uh, as their program office. It's, uh, uh, very wide in its, uh, swath, uh, all kinds of different, uh, platforms, uh, ships, boats, and craft. Um, most people are probably familiar with the higher end platforms, uh, platforms like, uh, DDG 51, LPDs, LHAs. Um, within uh, the PEO, uh, since it's forming, I guess I should just highlight a little bit on uh, when PEO Ships was formed. So PEO Ships was formed back in uh, 2002, and that was as part of a reorganization of multiple PEOs, basically consolidated uh, PEO um, Theater Surface Combatant, PEO Expeditionary Warfare, PEO... Um, MUW and PEO surface strike into a single PEO. So it just gives you a perspective of how wide uh, the portfolio is. The other thing that happened at that point was uh, new construction uh, got broken out from in-service. So in the old construct, PEOs had cradle to grave. Under our current construct, uh, PEO ships has cradle and uh, uh, C21, as my partner organization, has uh, uh, life cycle. And we uh, work together. We're co-located, PO ships and, C P and uh, C21. Uh, Admiral Verhagen and I work about 30 feet from each other. And we work together on a under a construct called Team Ships, where we uh, work together to make sure we, we cover uh, cradle to grave. So, again, in, in PO ships, uh, surface combatants, amphibs, Auxiliaries, think of things like uh, the begin with T, uh, TAO, Fleet Oilers, uh, TAGO surveillance ships. Um, we, have a, we have a large number of T ships that we construct in, uh, in PEO ships. Um, we also have boats and crafts. We do farm military sales, birthing barges, 
a uh, lot of uh, scope. Anything uh, beyond LCS and frigate that's not nuclear is uh, constructed in PEO ships. Wow, that's a lot. Thank you, sir. Um, so in preparation for this interview, um, talking with your staff, they sent me a document called the PEO Ships Guiding Principles, which I found to be uh, very interesting. So could you talk to us a little bit about uh, how those were developed and what they are? Yeah, I'll, I'll share, um, you know, when I, and this is a, a, a part of a process that I've used uh, each time I've taken command. Uh, going into a new command, I like to give some thought to, um, you know, what is that, what is that command all about? What is the current state of that command? And then um, something I learned uh, from Secretary Stackley back in the day, I, I perform a 90-day assessment. I assess the current state of the organization I'm about to take over. And uh, as part of that, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, setting expectations. I, I don't, I personally like to know what it is that my chain of command, my, my reporting senior, what his focus is or her focus is and uh, what they um, expect from me. So um, each time I've come into the job, I've laid out uh, a set of guiding principles. And these principles, from my perspective, are how we as an organization are going to behave. And they're an expectation for all the people that work in the organization um, and how they're going to execute their responsibilities. Uh, it's an expectation that they should have of me, how I'm going to execute uh, my responsibilities. And then ultimately, if we do the things that are in these guiding principles, uh, we will be successful. And quite frankly, in, uh, in shipbuilding, if we don't do these things, so we will not be. And uh, the write-up that I have for the guiding principles, um, you know, it's a one-pager, and it starts out with a little bit of a narrative at the top explaining who we are. And I'll just uh, I'll read you a sentence or two. Uh, it starts with, we are world-class acquirers of ships, and our success is critical to our Navy, our allies, and our nation's defense. We take pride in what we do. We understand the importance of our mission, and we are, cons we are committed to its success. As the Navy's leaders in surface ship acquisition, there is no one better prepared or more committed to delivering affordable, sustainable, state-of-the-art surface ships than the PEO ships team. And, um, you know, as I talk to folks who work within PEO ships or that are thinking of coming to PEO ships, if that if those statements resonate with you, you're in the right place. <laughs> that, that should get you going. It gets, it gets me going, and I know it gets the team going to think about you know, the importance of our responsibility of uh, delivering the, the Navy, the nation needs. Um, and then underneath that, it talks to seven guiding principles. And I think they will probably resonate with most people in, in any uh, organization that you're part of. But I kind of tailored the, the, uh, the principles and the explanations to what we do in PEO ships. And they're, they're pretty straightforward. It's keep it factual, which really means don't deal in opinion and conjecture. We deal in facts and analysis. Uh, be proactive. Um, really don't get caught in the uh, minor dilemmas of today at the expense of getting ahead of tomorrow's major issues. Prioritize. We all have more things uh, than we have time to do, at least many of us do. So with the time that you have, focus your efforts on getting the biggest bang for the buck. Uh, communicate. You know, this is uh, something that I um, that I was really important to me back when I was uh, uh, the program manager for LCS, and the part on communicate is uh, push good news with the same energy normally applied to bad. You know, in our community, 
there's a lot of discussion about the out areas where we're challenged and that's all fair and we should uh in line with cno's get real get better uh philosophy we should be assessing and improving but there's a tremendous amount of, of work that's done every day that really merits praise uh people spending themselves in the worthy cause in in my area of shipbuilding and I think uh, too often, you know, the, the, the big milestones that are met, the good things that are happening, the changes that uh, bring about improved performance, we don't we don't applaud them loudly enough. So I'm I'm very focused, and part of our uh, guiding principles is to make sure we do that. Uh, the next one is uh, finish, and finish is um, really about getting to done done. And I I say that in the context of. You know, we're all moving very fast. Sometimes we just want to get that one thing finished and out of the way. We don't necessarily finish it or tie it up in a way that gets it done forever. We kind of just get through it. And then in shipbuilding, a great example is, uh, you know, first to class, we want to get a first to class ship delivered. And we may have some things that are issues, but we're just going to muscle our way through on the first ship and we'll get it on the second ship. Well, what, what ends up happening is you end up not getting it on the second ship or the third ship and you spend a lot of energy instead of just getting it done right to begin with. Um, next one on here is uh, build depth, and this talks about uh, really two constructs, getting people indoctrinated properly when we bring them into an organization. And, uh, you know, in this, in this uh, market where um, finding quality people to come work for us is, uh, is probably more challenging than ever, the worst thing we can do is put the energy into finding a good person, and then uh, six months later they leave because uh, we didn't do a great job. Uh, making them feel like part of the team or giving them the tools they need or clearly explaining their responsibility. So indoctrinating people properly is really important. And then another huge one is uh, empowering existing members with experiences and challenges that will allow them to take on greater responsibility. And this is really important to our engineering duty officers that uh, as we bring people into the organization and we give them their day job, uh, that we're not shy about, uh, you know, giving them um, some opportunities to excel and challenging them uh, so they can get ready for that next level of, uh, of leadership. And then the last thing is uh, keeping it upbeat. And uh, that's that's a really important part of, uh, you know, a healthy organization. What we do, at least from my perspective in shipbuilding and I think throughout the ED community, uh, and all the mentor groups, I think you could say this for us, you know, shipbuilding is cool. Uh, it's really neat to build a ship and uh, see it sail out of a new construction yard, take pride in what you do, celebrate your accomplishments and uh, ends with uh, enthusiasm is contagious. And I, I, I believe that to be true. That's awesome. Thank you, sir. Yeah, really, uh, those points really stuck with me, especially at this moment, they keep it factual. As uh, I'm sure you're aware, emotions can run high in shipbuilding. Mm -hmm. And uh, the the people that I've seen uh, be the most effective um, in this area are the ones that are able to, you know, they, they can get a little excited about things, but keeping it factual um, uh, is very important to getting the job done. Yeah, uh, I think there's I think there's two for engineering duty officers in general. I think there's two pieces to the to the underlying core and you hit on it uh, of uh, keeping it factual. One is uh, it doesn't do us any good in advancing uh, the work that we do. Right. We have to talk in facts. People will get emotional. People will take positions. Uh, different organizations have, you know, our, our friends across the across the, the parking lot. Um, you know, they have uh, motivations. 
uh, from a business perspective, when you're dealing with industry, that doesn't mean they're not good people. Um, but we got to we got to keep them grounded in facts. And then the other thing is when we deal with external stakeholders and customers, you know, our credibility is really important. And, and I would say our credibility as engineering duty officers is really important. And um, the thing that we can do that's best for that credibility is come in with the facts, know our numbers and uh, put the details on the table. I think when we start getting too caught up in, um, you know, trying to advance a certain uh, line of effort or agenda and we deviate from the facts, that's when we lose, uh, we, lose, uh, lose we lose trust in our leaders. Our, our leadership loses trust in us. Absolutely. Okay. Next question for you, sir, is what are the biggest challenges and rewards associated with the PEO ship's position from a leadership perspective? Oh, that's a great question. I'll, I'm going to start with the, um, with the rewards because they come to mind really quick. Um, it's, it's awesome for me uh, to lead a team of program managers that are doing so much to deliver capability. And uh, so I have nine program managers that, uh, that, that work for me, um, very uh, broad and diverse um, uh, program offices, great people under them. Uh, get to watch the leaders uh, leading. Um, you know, one thing that's wonderful for me is every once in a while I get to ride a ship. So I'll go on a sea trial and I'll get to see the team in action. And uh, I think a lot of my counterparts at this, uh, this uh, seniority, you know, I was snickering as you were reading my bio and talking about being commissioned in 91. There's probably people listening who weren't born, <laughs> but I joined the Navy. I don't know. That happens for all of you. The time flies. Um, but to get out there and go on a sea trial, go to a new construction yard, be in a meeting to just watch um, some of the expertise we have uh, at the leadership of the program and office is uh, really wonderful. And then the other piece is uh, getting to talk to some of the newer employees and help them along on their journey. Right. Uh, new people coming in, uh, you know, trying to figure out which end is up. Um, you know, uh, getting some uh, of those uh, build depth, challenging experiences and watch them excel. Th those are just uh, those are just awesome. I, I will share with me um, over time what's what's changed. Um, what's changed for me is I used to be very product focused. Uh, you know, I wanted to see ships delivered and ship counts are important and all that kind of stuff. Now I really enjoy watching the humans uh, come along and uh, becoming those subject matter experts. It's really wonderful. So then for the challenges, um, I became PEO Ships less than a year into to, uh, the pandemic. Um, I had a certain vision of how, um, you know, we would uh, bond as a group and get after some of the opportunities that I identified in those that 90-day assessment. And it was just a lot slower uh, than my past experiences in taking command. So uh, the pandemic brings, you know, brought an unusual set of challenges. Uh, one of those challenges for me was the ability to get some group cohesion. Uh, it was a little bit harder. Um, I think now, um, I know now, after some time we've worked through that, but it probably took a little longer than it might normally have. Um, another challenge for me as the PEO is I, I never envisioned I'd be in a place where Congress wanted to give me uh, more money than uh, I could, I could utilize, uh, what do I mean by that? You know, historically, you know, we work really hard to make sure that, um, we don't have gaps in workload at shipyards. 
And right now, I would say in general, we've got almost all of our shipyards fully loaded. And if they had more manpower resources, we would give them more work. So that's uh, that's been a different kind of challenge. The challenge of not trying to go out and make sure we had adequate work, the challenge of figuring out how to work with industry to increase their capacity so we can build uh, we can build more ships. That's great. Thank you, sir. Um, <clears throat> so so next question deals a little bit with how your leadership perspective has changed over time. And you mentioned a little bit, you used to be more uh, product focused. Um, but in general, how do you feel you have uh, personally adapted as a leader as you have moved up through the ranks? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, a couple of things have changed for me over time. I, I, I did talk a little bit about, um, you know, being very motivated kind of at the tactical level of uh, task completion that um, resulted in product uh, delivery. That's still important, but um, as you get more senior and you have more people that you're leading, um, I would say the leadership aspect, the uh, raising people to do it, the uh, giving people experiences. I use the term, and, I, and you'll hear me probably use it a few times during our interview today, tools in the tool bag. How do we put tools in the tool bags of our future leaders so they're really uh, uh, ready when they get to that leadership level to, uh, to excel? I would say that's, that's really important. Um, the other thing that's happened over my life is, uh, you know, in my personal life, I, had, I have kids. And um, when you have kids, uh, I think, um, you know, there's some, there's some uh, changes in, in, uh, in your empathy levels for me, for sure. You know, when I, before I had kids, um, I didn't necessarily understand the challenges of having kids. And then when kids have issues, uh, you know, how that works. So I would say like, uh, understanding the family challenges, uh, personal challenges of individuals, how do we uh, navigate those to allow the person to uh, have success in both their personal and professional lives uh, is, pro is certainly something that ch has changed for me. I now, um, for all of you that have little kids, it'll be okay. They'll eventually uh, grow, grow to uh, responsible citizens. Um, I know for me, when my kids were little, I couldn't envision that that was going to happen. And now I have two grown kids who are out of the house. And uh, and employed, and that—that's another thing that I've—I've I've picked up honestly here of late, watching my kids transition to the workforce, understanding some of the challenges for new employees. You know, um, now that I'm—I'm I'm, uh, a few years removed from uh, being a new employee, understanding the challenges they're working through, things like, uh, you know, coming into the workforce in the telework environment. It's—it's uh, uh, it's very different, and uh, there's positives to it, and there's challenges to it. So I would say, um, you know, from a, from a empathy, new employee, uh, work-life balance perspective, my, my perspective has changed over my career. That's great. Um, so speaking of tools in the toolbox, um, one of the things I wanted to jump into is Compass, because I think that's uh, something that SoupShip is... Um, you know, we're starting to utilize, uh, developed by PEO ships. So could you talk to us a little bit about the origination for the Compass tool? For those who might not be familiar with it, Compass stands for Combined Portfolio Assessment System. And uh, 
Compass is really at its core um, a data aggregation tool. Okay, so um, so so why do we need a data aggregation tool? Um, you know, we have we have um, lots of different stakeholders who work in um, ship acquisition and system acquisition. And we all tend to work in our own uh, in our own tools. Uh, that's true at the supervisor of shipbuilding. I think folks that have worked there, there are different program offices, uh, different programs on the waterfront do things in different ways. Um, you know, in the program offices proper, different programs do things in different ways, different parms do things in different ways. And, um, you know, the way that the information from all those disparate, um, disparate uh, organizations work is uh, emails and phone calls. And there's no, when I came into the job, there was no common source uh, to go look at something and understand status in real time and truth. Um, I had previously, when I was in C21, seen a similar situation, and we stood up something called Smitty, which was another data aggregation tool, which was to give a holistic view of what was going on in in-service maintenance. And, uh, and that product really made a difference in all stakeholders understanding the state of, I would say at any given time, you know, ship availability as an example. So instead of having somebody on the waterfront generate a report and someone check it and change it and then someone else check it and change it and then ultimately after multiple hands, many hours, you know, sending an email to a, a member of leadership with a static brief attached in that organization at any time now, they can just go in and take a look. And, uh, and we're doing that on the ship acquisition side. So um, two and a half years ago, using Corona as our... Um, data aggregator. Uh, we began down the Compass journey. Originally, it was a PEO ships uh, product, but what we've done over time is we've been able to pull in uh, PEO USC, um, PEO IWS, uh, PEO C4I, and we're working to come up with common products that will allow us, I would say, you know, for sure at the leadership level to take a look uh, at where we're at at any given time at the data, but really more importantly at the working level uh, to take a look at the data and use the tool in real time to make decisions. That's great. Um, so current capabilities of Compass, um, you mentioned working level decision-making, but for, from a, a PO ships perspective, um, what information is Compass currently providing you um, for decision-making purposes? Oh yeah, it's great. So there's um, so at the moment we have 20 different pages, products within Compass. Um, I'll give you an example. The other day I was in my office. Um, it was late in the day on a Friday, and um, I got an email from CNO asking me for some information on schedules because he had a follow-up that you need to do on a hill engagement. Uh, normally on a Friday afternoon, what that would mean is, uh, you know, I would talk to my executive director. They would talk to the program manager. The program manager would talk to the production officer. The production officer would make sure the facts were right, probably call the PMR. So we'd have a bunch of different hands in this. We would have taken hours to validate the information. And then I would have sent a note back. Uh, on that Friday, what I did was I opened up Compass and I went to the page 
that talks about um, schedules and days of delivery delay. And uh, I had the information in five minutes and I was able to shoot the email. So, you know, for me, uh, two things. One, I've got it ready, you know, professionally as an organization, we look squared away when we get asked a question, we can answer it with tact, timely, accurate, concise, and thorough. Uh, but for the for all the people underneath, they weren't they weren't getting phone calls on Friday afternoon, uh, and then you know jumping through hoops to try to figure out how to get that information. That that's that's useful at a leadership level. But now, if you magnify that across all the different things that happen every day within a program or on the waterfront, the soup ship, I think it's I think it's really powerful. That's outstanding. Um, so in the future, what additional capabilities do you envision that Compass will provide? Yeah, I, I would um, share that um, what I hope Compass provides in the future is what uh, the folks at the working level need, <laughs> right? So, um, you know, first and foremost, this really should be a tool. You know, I just gave you an example, and that was an example that touched four or five people. But when you get it down to the working level, and when I talk about the working level, I'm talking about, you know, the soup ship at the waterfront, you know, the people that are on the ship doing the work every day. I talk about in the program offices, the logisticians, the, uh, you know, engineers, the, um, the, uh, the contract specialists, um, and, and that magnifies across all the organizations. Um, you know, as they come up with ideas that will make their lives easier and make their decisions more informed, that's where we're going to focus our effort. And uh, I would say over the last year, we've spent a fairly considerable amount of time uh, working with the supervisor, the PARMs, to get after that, what do you, what do you need next? And uh, they're going to drive it. I, I'm not driving it from the top to say, I need this one report or I need this piece of data. Uh, that stuff will come up. That'll aggregate up uh, when the when the folks doing the work every day get what they need. That's great. Um, okay, so next section of questions is going to be about EDOs and their development. What additional leadership or technical skills do you believe the EDO community will need to develop or mature in the next ten years? Yeah, let me. Um... Let me talk about um, not leadership and or technical skills. Let me talk about um, leadership versus technical skills. I guess I'm going to change it up a little bit. So um, I think our community does a good job in general pacing changes in technology, right? Um, We've kind of morphed over time, you know, uh, heavy HM&E community, uh, combat systems, equities, now IT coming along. Um, you know, I think the community has done a pretty good job. We find people who have interest in these evolving fields and um, we encourage them through education and position to go get smart on those things. And we really do, from a technical perspective, have really some world-class um, capability um, in the EDO community. The thing that I would say um we need to work on is the leadership um, aspect. I think over time we've become so focused on maturing technical skills that uh, we've lost a little bit, a little bit of our step in the leadership arena. And, um, you know, I go back to that, um, 
that building depth uh, discussion we had earlier about challenging people and putting them in co- uncomfortable uh, situations. I say uncomfortable from a, um, you know, responsibilities um, perspective. Um, you know, th- that's where I think our community needs to continue to evolve and mature um, in some of the leadership and soft skills that will allow us to uh, make progress um, advancing the technical aspects. I go back to that discussion we had before about, um, you know, trust with um, with leadership and uh, uh, people looking at the EDO community and, uh, you know, considering us experts. I think they, at the moment, consider us technical experts. I don't know that at the moment in all areas they consider us to be uh, exceptional leaders. So uh, get real, get better, a little bit of self-assessment. What are we doing to kind of advance and foster leadership abilities in uh, people as we, uh, as we bring them up um, as engineering duty officers? I think that's where uh, a lot of our effort uh, will be spent, needs to be spent in the near term to get after some of that. Great. So um, strategy, what strategy do you believe we'll, we'll use in order to acquire these leadership skills? Yeah, I think the first, I think the first part of this is really, um, is really assessment. And um, about a year ago, um, Admiral Galinas asked me to go take a look at uh, how we were handling um, command screening and look at other communities to determine uh, what they were doing, uh, just to figure out how we get to the place where when we select people for command, they're really ready to excel in those positions. And this goes back to some extent, the discussion about, you know, an observation that within our community, we're really excellent technically, but we're not always um, uh, excellent from a, from a leadership perspective. Um, and that's not universal. That's a, you know, a generic, uh, we, we seem to be challenged in some areas. So um, I went off, I looked at a bunch of different communities and how they um, assess readiness for command and leadership in readiness for command. And what I found was our community really was an outlier in the process that we use to uh, screen people for command. So um, there's two points in your career where, you're, where you'll get assessed um, for command. One, um, as a commander, uh, although there are a very limited number of commander commands, and then one is a captain. And what we found when we did that review was where other communities were putting a lot of energy into um, things that were not administrative, things like uh, oral boards or uh, evaluations, our community was totally making the pick based on uh, an administrative process. Um, so over the last year, we've uh, set out to um, pilot uh, different methods that we would use to um, assess people for uh, command. And what we found was that, um, you know, assessing someone for command when they're captain is too late in the game. Um, too late in the game from the making the uh, determination that they um, should be screened for command but late in the game for giving any kind of useful feedback to the person if they're not ready. So um, through these pilots that we've uh, done, we're actually moving the command um, screening process to the left and moving it to the left significantly. And um, we've actually are going down the path of a, uh, a multi-pass 
system to screen for command. So let me just explain it a little bit, maybe a little bit uh, in more detail. Currently, after you make commander, you are screened for commander command. In the pilots that we're doing, and what we're likely to do in policy going forward, is we're shifting that look to after you make lieutenant commander. And um, we would hold um, a command screening uh, board. It would include uh, oral interview. Uh, oral interview, when I, when I say oral interview, I think in, initially people think uh, like your EDQP board. Um, uh, not so much. Uh, as I mentioned, we're not worried about the technical aspects in this command screening uh, process. We're worried about the leadership aspects. So, you know, command screening board with questions like, um, have you ever been in a tremendously stressful event at work? How have you handled it? How do you uh, mentor people with regards to how they handle stress, right? Um, uh, questions that are more about your, um, your, your leadership abilities and how you work through things then you know explain the steam cycle so that would happen that would happen for commanders at the lieutenant commander level it's a two pass right now we're talking about a two pass process so um if you come in and you and you um are good to go from a leadership perspective we say hey you're good to go you're screened uh, that would be your your one look if there are some feedback on things to work on, um, you would come back and do a second um, uh, command screening um, uh, board uh, before the determination is made before you go up for commander. Uh, the other thing I didn't mention, in addition to the um, to the um, to the oral board, the interview, uh, there also is a session with a um, a organizational psychologist. Uh, this is not like, um, you know, lay down on the sofa and tell me your problems. It's really more like akin to what um, industry does with um, with interviews for folks coming in, uh, really talking um, about things like uh, introversion, extroversion, um, you know, um, emotional intelligence, uh, those kind of things. Now, the good thing from the command screening process, in addition to, um, you know, being screened for a commander having a second look is feedback. And I think that's the part, not think, that is the part that's missing from our current process. Currently we do it late and you get, and you get no feedback. In this process, uh, you get feedback from the, um, the uh, psychologist, you get feedback from the board members, you get feedback that's really meant to help you uh, get better as a leader uh, in the engineering duty officer community. I'll pause there. I know it transmitted quite a bit. I'm passionate about it. This is a really exciting thing for our community. No, that's great. And and just to be sure, this is um, this is part of the. I know some pockets of our community have heard about this, but this is part all part of something called the Engineering Duty Officer Leadership Assessment Pilot. Is that correct, sir? Yeah, EDO. Yes, EDO Lab. The EDO the EDO Lab is um, the pilots that we've done to kind of test out this future approach that we're going to use for command screening. We've done uh, two of them to date, um, and we're about to do a third in May in uh, San Diego. And uh, after we do this third one, um, we're going to move on to uh, making this uh, part of how we do business. Okay, Roger that. And and uh, one of the outcomes of this um, 
is you know you you go through the process you get uh, screened for commander command as a lieutenant commander and that goes into your record and that's now becomes an indicator to the promotion board that the EDO community believes this person is ready for commander is that correct yeah i think what will end up happening is we'll kind of do a two step function we'll one use it to generate um designation as screened for command and then two for board purposes we'll put language in that determines that uh, command screening is a priority for us it's not to say that people who don't screen for command don't have won't have opportunity uh, to promote but the opportunity will probably go uh, first and foremost to those that have screened because for our community uh, command is what we all should be aspiring to that that's 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 really uh you know for the edo community community filling our command billets is what uh what we're all about absolutely i appreciate that and i think that's uh really helpful i know there's a lot of concern right now over the uh uh you know multiple looks at uh 05 prior to being promoted so i think this uh in, in addition to developing the leadership skills ensuring we have uh, you know uh adequate uh, leaders taking command positions, um, this, this should help with that. I, I believe it will. And I think it will also focus us on putting energy into be to be ready for command and command screening. I say that, what do I, why do I say that? I say, because for me, um, you know, uh, the, the Lieutenant Commander, Commander Captain Anderson, um, I was oblivious to this to the process that took place for command screening. I just know at some point it popped into my record that I had screened, right? I hadn't done anything to merit it. I didn't put any preparation into it. And it kind of makes me stand back and pause and say, hey, uh, should I have been putting energy into being ready? For example, one of the things we do as part of the um, EDO lap is we ask, um, you know, the people who are uh, – selectees to generate um, their command philosophy. Um, so we're asking folks at the lieutenant commander level to think about command philosophy. I, I don't I don't think we've been doing that. And that's absolutely something that at the lieutenant commander level we should be thinking about. How am I going to uh, lead when I'm in command? What is the, what are the priorities for me? Um, what tools do I need to put in my tool bag between now and when I'm in command so I can be successful as opposed to the way it's happened in the past, which is, Hey, you've been selected for command and then people start thinking about it. Um, just, just my two cents. I think it's really going to be good to kind of pull us left in our thought process on what uh, command is all about and how do we actually ready ourselves to be in command. That's great. Uh, sorry, one more question on this. You, you said it was, um, it was based off of uh, some other communities, the way they do command screening. Are there uh, some specific communities that this is based mostly upon? Yeah, there's some. Um, I would say a lot of us have plagiarized from uh, from the uh, from the seals. So the seals have, um, you know, clearly they have to have themselves in the right place from a leadership perspective to work under such arduous conditions. So they go through and they've been using for a while this um, concept of, uh, you know, the organizational uh, 
psychologists coming in and doing those interviews provide feedback on their emotional intelligence and other factors. Um, uh, many communities use the, um, the oral board. Um, right now we're seeing changes in the submarine community and some tweaking in the SWO community to use both the organizational psychologists and to kind of up their game on the, um, on the oral boards, you know, for the SWOs, the oral board used to be, um, you have to sit with an 06, um, SWO, um, and do an oral board and interview with them. And then they give you the thumbs up or not, which really puts a lot of eggs in one basket about a discussion with one individual. So they're going to a concept that has a board similar to like what we're, what we're doing. I would say from a pilot perspective, we're maybe ahead of a couple of the communities, which feels good. Um, with regards to implementing this, um, but but there's there's several communities that are doing it. But really, it started with the SEALs who had a really good process for making sure they were selecting the right people for command. That's awesome. Thank you, sir. Okay, so last question for you. Um, any good book recommendations? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so uh, by now, maybe everybody's read it, but uh, Freedom's Forge. I'm going over to my bookshelf. Um, so Freedom's Forge is a is an awesome book. Um, uh, Arthur Herman uh, talks about World War II. Uh, gives you a sense of how to, the industrial base uh, ramped up. I think it's a good read, not from the perspective of we're going to do what's in this in this book. I think it's a good read from the perspective of thinking about what we will do. Um, you know, I think most of us are aware that. Um, you know, this peer competition uh, with uh, Russia and predominantly China is getting contentious and, um, you know, conflict could come sooner than later. And I know for me, you know, one of my lines of effort in, in PEO ships is uh, wartime readiness. Um, actually, going beyond thinking about what we're going to do, practicing some of what we're going to do. Uh, for example, in the DDG-51 world, um, We've established a pilot where we're going to take a new construction ship, DDG-122, and we're going to excel her to be forward employed. And uh, when I say accelerate her, we're basically going to take her from the shipyard to her home port, and then we're going to send her. And uh, we're doing that because in wartime, what's going to happen is we're going to take all the ships that are in the yard that are close to being finished. We're going to button them up, and we're going to send them. So rather than wait until we're in that uh, environment. Let's go practice it. Let's practice it now when the when the stakes are lower. And we've got great partnership with uh, with the fleet and TICOM to do that. So Freedom's Forge, uh, a great one. And then uh, you know, as a as a as a true Steelers fan, I'm a lifelong Steelers fan. Uh, you know, 100 things Steelers fans should know and do before they die, by Matt Lodel. Uh, that that should be that should be I just I just read it this weekend uh, on the plane. So I encourage uh, all those that are looking for a team or who are already parts of Steelers Nation. Uh, one of your things Steelers fans should know or do before they die. That's great. And that's only for that. Anybody can read that. You don't that's have to anybody be a Steelers can read it. And if you're making a decision, you know, maybe you're undecided on who your team is or, <laughs> or your team has been losing for so long. You're ready to jump to a winner. <laughs> uh, no, I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a big Steelers fan and I encourage all of you, hopefully everyone has their, uh, 
you know, outside of work, things they like to do. Uh, for me, it's, uh, it's running, uh, the Steelers and, uh, and, uh, time down. I, I have a shore house down, uh, in Maryland. I like spending time with my family there. So make sure everybody's taking the time to recharge what, what every, what y'all do is uh, really challenging, uh, important work. Um, and we need to make sure we're taking the time to, uh, to get ourselves in a good place. So we have that balance, uh, uh, in both our, our personal and professional lives. All right. Well, Admiral, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for sharing your uh, perspective from your seat at uh, PEO Ships. Thanks again. Appreciate thank it, you. sir. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us in the wardroom. Special thanks to our sound engineer, Lieutenant Alex Schacht. If you have questions for our guests, comments, or suggestions, you can email us at thewardroompodcast at gmail.com or tweet or follow us on Twitter at The Wardroom Podcast.